Hello and welcome to another episode of the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the sixth episode in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Lewis DeFreitz. I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here in Cambridge. And this afternoon, I'm very happy to be speaking to Sarah Knott, an Associate Professor of History at Indiana University in Bloomington, which is a lovely town, and a Senior Visiting Research Fellow at the Ruffermere Institute, University of Oxford. Sarah is a specialist in American and European history with a focus on culture, gender and emotion in the Age of Revolutions. Her first book, Sensibility in the American Revolution, was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2009 and explores the importance of sensibility as a movement that celebrated the human capacity for sympathy and sensitivity in the development of an American revolutionary identity. She co-edited the volume Women, Gender and Enlightenment, published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2005, and more recently has published the article Narrating the Age of Revolutions in William and Mary Quarterly. However, on the evidence of the paper we'll be discussing today, it seems as if her work is moving somewhat beyond that time period in particular. <laughs> so, Sarah, thanks very much for speaking to me today. Thank you, it's good to be here. Thank you. So we're going to be uh, talking about your paper, a bit about uh, the broader project, and maybe some of your other experiences as a historian and a person. So the paper today is titled Mother is a Verb, British and North American History Since the 17th Century. I've been lucky enough to read it already and found it fascinating, but could you tell the listeners of the podcast a bit more about it? Oh, I'd be glad to. And uh, as you correctly observed, my interests have moved somewhat away in recent years from the 18th century. Um, So this uh, paper comes from a book that um, takes us at historical terrain, Britain and North America since the 17th century. So all the way up until the end of the 20th century. Uh, And that book uh, seeks to give a history to maternity, by which I mean pregnancy and birth and the encounter with a small infant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a birth, it's a book that um, imagines a variety of audiences, and so I've experimented a little bit with the form. Um, so rather than tell a chronological narrative of how pregnancy, birth, and uh, infant care have changed over the centuries, my interest has rather been to try and give a history to those small activities, mm-hmm. uh, the small activity of uh, holding a baby, Uh, or feeding a baby or being sleepless, for example. Um, So the book takes uh, my own experience as its narrative arc and and just turns onto that historical terrain in order to historicise the most mundane of everyday experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the paper today actually takes uh, three extracts from the book. It takes the prologue, which sets out some of the... um, sets the scene, if you like. Uh, It shares a chapter called Time Interrupted, which tries to give a history to the sense of interruption that can can characterise mothering. And then it ends on a note on method, which reflects on some of the method that the the book arrived at Mm -hmm. uh, by the end of the process. Okay. Um, Yeah, and I'm interested in that use of your own experiences as a mother as you write about other people's experiences. And the thing that brings that together is your use of anecdote. And that's littered throughout the paper, and I'm assuming throughout the rest of the book. And it's quite an unconventional way of writing history. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about your use of anecdote? Oh, thank you very much. Yes, it is unconventional, isn't it? Um, Well, in some ways, the use of anecdote was a response to the kind of archive that is left behind us Mm -hmm. about mothering, right? That if we're thinking about infant care, the residual archive is just so spotty. There's very little there. And what is there is in fragments. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a while, I I, uh, butted my head against that Uh, until I I arrived at the point where I saw anecdote is, in fact, exactly what is needed. And I could do that 
uh, with several kinds of help. One was the help of um, theorists of maternity mm -hmm. who have, have observed in our present day that because, exactly because interruption characterizes maternity, then anecdote rather than narrative is our best data point. Yeah. Right. So there's a contemporary theory there. Um, the archive itself, and then also actually a tradition of historical writing that does employ anecdote mm -hmm. and has done so since the 17th century. Um, that is to say that even if historians in the present day um, tend to be privileging narrative mm -hmm. right, as a form of historical writing, there are precedents to uh, my mode of writing as one that emphasises anecdote over other forms. Right, okay. And that particularly comes through in your uh, discussion about interruption in this paper in particular. And there seems to be not attention, but like something about like reading people's recollections or diaries or letter writing where it is the moment of interruption that really comes to the fore. Could you perhaps talk about yeah how your use of anecdote maybe like helps you uh, into these parts of history that wouldn't otherwise be available? Yes, yeah, so I suppose any anecdote represents a scene unfolding. Mm -hmm. And when I initially looked at the kinds of materials you were gesturing to, right, the, the yeah. diary entry that's left off, uh, the letter that's left off, um, what I noticed was just the absence of the evidence I was actually looking for. Mm -hmm. And then I just, I, what I came to notice, rather, was that it's in that moment of, of stoppage that we can see some of the content of mothering itself. Right. right? So anecdote lets me thematize interruption, if you like, rather than just be stoppered by it. Mm. Um, I should also add that the way in which the book moves between my personal, his, my personal experience and history is really a movement between memoir and history. Mm. And so the book in many ways is, it writes as much into a tradition of literary maternal memoir as it does into a tradition of women's and gender history. Okay. Uh, and I've taken a lot of inspiration from some of the really terrific uh, literary memoirs that have been written since the 1970s. Yeah. Any in particular? Well, if we think about it as a genre, really as a genre, it emerges with women's liberation. Mm -hmm. It emerges with Adrian Rich. Uh, it emerges with Jane Lazar. Um, it emerges with uh, Alice Walters writing in Walters writing in the Black womanist tradition. And then, if we were sort of to swivel our gaze to the present day, I'm thinking of uh, writers like Rachel Cusk, uh, Mer Maggie Nelson, uh, Chitra Ramaswamy. I mean, there's actually a raft of um, women writers who have turned to maternity as a, a topic in their own lives to think with okay. and about. Yeah. And that many of those memoirs are also characterised by an em emphasis on the anecdotal, the tiny, the short, the small, mm. um, and the, the argument that those uh, tiny, short, small moments are worth yeah. our uh, attention. Mm. And so one of the things that comes through through, through that um, use of anecdote and I suppose the, the lineage that you're writing in is that you manage to talk about your own experiences and situate within this long historical arc without necessarily giving too totalising a conception of motherhood. Like you seem aware of specific historical conditions and changes. Could you perhaps talk about maybe some of the through lines and some of the specific changes like that that mm. have come up through your research that you might have not been aware of otherwise? That's a lovely question. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so the use of my own experience is not to universalise from it, yeah. uh, but quite the opposite, mm -hmm. right, to particularise through yeah. juxtaposition. Yeah. Uh, so what's wonderful about anecdote is that when one assembles anecdote and juxtaposes and contrasts, what one arrives at is a far more various 
view of maternity than one might otherwise have. Mm-hmm. Right. So that my own experience as um, you know white middle class woman now, uh, uh, a working class girl before, is not one that's taken as archetypal in any way. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the real interpretive grists of the book. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that mothering is may be very bodily, but it's not biological. Mm-hmm. It's not essential. It's not universal. Um, you asked about what kinds of through lines um, I perceive in the history of mothering. Yeah. And that's a harder question to ask because in some ways I've resisted that. Okay. I've, yeah. I've resisted um, grand narrative and in mm-hmm. many ways I've actually set anecdote up against grand narratives. I think what we do have are grand narratives of motherhood as ideology, as institution, as mm-hmm. identity. Um, if we were to start to assemble grand narratives of mothering... I would say that we would look first to historians of birth who've given mm-hmm. us a really splendid historiography. Uh, I would be able to add to that grand narratives about um, breastfeeding, right? It shifts away from wet nursing, for example, the rise of bottle feeding. Those are very consequential mm-hmm. big changes. Um, so there are different grand narratives to be found, but I haven't privileged grand narrative as my category, yeah. actually. And I think that's one of the strengths of the paper, and I'm assuming the rest of the book, um, especially you talking about these different episodes like interruption, and what were some of the other chapters that you were writing about? I mean, I suppose the, the chapters that were most directly provoked by this method yeah. um, were chapters on sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, a, there's a chapter on the sound of a baby's crying. Like, can you give a history to the sound of a baby's tears? Um, chapters about smell and damp cloth. These are the kinds of topics I wouldn't have been led to by the historiography, mm-hmm. but I was led to by a readiness to sit with very fine-grained, small material sure. and try to give it a history. Yeah, and yeah. your own experiences, I'm assuming. Yes, because my own experiences actually gave me the patience to write about topics that I otherwise would have found dull or weird. Mm. And I suppose this is a, a difficult question, but in writing this history and in sharing your work, has there been any pushback in the centering of your own experiences? There has been, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um Two kinds of pushback, really. One um, query of, is this objective? You know, can this be rigorous history writing if it's not objective? I actually think that's the less interesting critique. I think we have have a very robust feminist critique of the notion of previous forms of history writing as objective. And I'm quite happy to stand with those folks. (laughs) Um, I think originally my approach raised the hackles of some older feminist historians who were sort of concerned at the attention to, in some ways, exactly those activities that had most sequestered women, most set women apart. And it has taken me a while to think about how to disarm that concern and to um, understand what I'm doing really is walking through a door that exactly that generation of feminist historians had opened for someone like me. Uh, And to uh, say that, you know, if we don't give a history to these bodily experiences, other people will. Mm -hmm. You know, if we don't claim those kinds of experiences, if we don't claim authority over birth or nursing, uh, or the everyday lives of um, women of various kinds tending children, then other kinds of commentators will come in and tell histories that we do not subscribe to. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, so has writing this book uh, and this project, has it in any way made you reconsider your own previous work, or if not, how would it fit in to your other historical (laughs) writing? Well, originally I thought of this book as a side project. I thought Mm. of it as um, something I could write when I was too sleepless to think about abstractions like liberty or equality or popular sovereignty. So it only came to be a second book quite slowly. 
Yeah. Um, but in, in the doing of it, I've, I do actually see real commonalities um, in terms of my earlier interests in, how, in selfhood, in subjectivity, in the history of emotion, but also in questions about how historians bear witness to the past. So the most recent um, article that you mentioned, Narrating the Age of Revolutions, is actually an analysis of how contemporaries of the Age of Revolutions, mid-20th century scholars and contemporary scholars have borne witness to that uh, age. And they've borne witness largely through narrative. But really my concern there was witnessing. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way, there's a parallel there between that enterprise, the analysis of witnessing the past, and the kind of witnessing that I'm undertaking in this book, if in very different guise. Fantastic. Right, so I suppose we'll move on to some more general questions now. <coughs> sure. Are there any uh, books or articles that you've read in the last 12 months that have got you really excited, either about your own work or maybe about the state of the field more generally? Mm. So that's a really hard question because in the last month or so I've been rereading and editing a wonderful set of essays that have been submitted for a volume I'm co-editing called Mothering's Many Labours. Right. And those essays come from a whole range of scholars, West Africa, um, the Caribbean, antebellum America, as well as uh, modern Britain, for example. So those are the, uh, the, the items that are closest to mine, but I don't think I should talk about unpublished mm. work. <laughs> so I will mention uh, actually a book that I'm reading exactly now, which is Nell Irvin Painter's uh, memoir, mm-hmm. Old in Art School. So here we have a much decorated uh, African-American historian who, on retiring from Princeton, went to art school and is now writing, or has written, a memoir of the process of shucking off her understanding of the world as a historian and entering into a view of the world as an artist. And it's, mm. a, it's a wonderful reflection both on coming of age again, but also on what it means to don different sets of eyes, yeah. right? Leaving one discipline behind and learning whole new visual vocabularies. Mm. It's a fantastic book. Yeah. Have you read Very, it? It's, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful. Really good book, yeah. So what's the most interesting place that you've been for research? <laughs> so possibly the most interesting place I've been for research is actually on my doorstep, and that is the Kinsey Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Kinsey Institute is an institution at Indiana University. It's a sexology institute, and it also has the most remarkable um, archive and collection. So I'm very fond of taking my students in there to look at early modern condoms or uh, early modern pornography, and it's a wonderful place to work. It has, Mm. for example, for this book that I've just finished, uh, it has a wonderful collection of um, materials relating to lesbian family making since the 1980s. The kinds of materials I just wouldn't find anywhere else. Brilliant. So the last question, as we ask everyone, um, what's your favourite album? So that seems to me the historian's question about music, because do we listen to albums anymore? Yeah, I'd never realised that this was such a contentious issue until I started this podcast. Cause... So I'm glad you asked me yeah. this question ahead of time. Okay. And I, <laughs> so I thought rather than entering an exegesis about that change in contemporary media, mm-hmm. I would say that uh, in my hometown there's a wonderful world music scene. Mm-hmm. And through that I've come to be familiar with a Swedish hip-hop band called Movitz. And okay. their albums I listen to when I go running. So that's Fantastic. my answer to your album question. Brilliant. Well, Sarah, not thank you for the fascinating paper and for the interesting answers to my question today. It's looking been a pleasure to talk. Thank you. So we're looking forward to the seminar tonight, and I'm personally very excited to read the book when it comes out next year. Yes, next, next year. Uh, March and April. Fantastic. Well, we're looking forward to it. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Cheers.